0: Today, our scripture is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command— if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let us hear the word of the Lord.
1: Friends, if I ask you, is it possible to separate religion and politics? What would you say? I just want you to think about that. Would would you say yes, it is possible? Would you say no, it is not possible? Would you say it's probably not, but we should keep on trying as best we can? Well, the Bible makes a, a very clear distinction, and no, this is not an AP government lecture. <laughs> between the institution of the state and her responsibilities and the institution of the church and her responsibilities. But there's something else the Bible says and that is, over and over again, Scripture repeatedly insists it's impossible to separate religion from politics. Why? Why? Because every human being on the planet is a worshiper. Okay? By worshiper, I obviously don't mean every human being on the planet is part of an organized religion. I simply mean every human being is religious in the sense that they ascribe value to something or someone as the ultimate measure of what is true and good and right and worthy of allegiance. So a crass materialist has a functional God. They believe the pleasures and possessions of this world define what is what? True, good, right, and worthy of allegiance. A strident atheist has a functional God. They believe the conviction that there is no God defines what is ultimately true, good, right, and therefore in all circumstances worthy of allegiance. We're all worshipers. But as Christians, what what do we believe in contrast to those functional gods? We believe the eternal, self sufficient, and infinitely glorious God who created the world and everything in it is the ultimate measure of what is true, good, right, and therefore worthy of allegiance, right? That's what we believe because the Word tells us that's true. And it's precisely that religious conviction that makes the church inescapably political. Now by political, I don't mean the church has some kind of biblical mandate to endorse particular political candidates. You are not going to hear me do that at any point in 2020. And I think that's pastorally unwise to do so for a variety of reasons. But the church is deeply political. Think about this. In the sense that our religious belief entails a particular sort of vision for human flourishing. For the kind of community, the kind of body politic in which you will thrive And every human being on the planet will thrive. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The the church is a political body because by God's design, the church holds out to the world a vision, a glimpse of a new kind of community. It's called the goodness and beauty of life in God's kingdom. So think about it. We have a ruler, King Jesus. What's our governing law? God's law. And the foundation of our relationships with one another is the gift of forgiveness that we have all received in Christ Jesus. That's what, if we understand it rightly, eliminates rivalry in the new community of the church and brings unity. And as Jonathan Lehman argues in a fine book called How the Nations Rage, for a Christian, the political life must begin inside the church. In our new creation life together as local congregations. Okay, translation, life in the church, in this community, is supposed to be life the way it was meant to be. The way God designed it to be, the way he created it to be. A true, albeit imperfect, taste of heaven on earth. And so it comes as no surprise, friends, that that God's word, maybe you've never thought about this before, It's probably why I say this, God's word is full of political claims. In that, it says over and over again, this is how the community of God's people should relate to each other, and this is how the community of God's people should not relate to each other. Those are political claims, community claims, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15 is exactly one of those places. Because in these verses, Paul's doing what? He's laying out a political vision for the church, but it's not a democratic vision or republican vision or some sort of I'm separate and above it all, independent vision. No, it's Jesus' authoritative vision for his redeemed people. So so what is Jesus' political platform, if I could phrase it that way, for the church, for the new covenant community, What's his platform when it comes to the issue of work? Do it. <laughs> That's the question I'm going to try to answer. That's our topic this morning, okay? But if you think about it, so many political parties, like elected political parties in our country, have in their political platforms some statement about work. It's value, it's importance, how we should think about it. Well, Jesus is no different except he's really different than them and that his vision is authoritative, right? So, so how would I summarize Jesus' vision for work? Say it this way. The people of God should be characterized by providing for themselves and others through hard work. Really simple. Now you can go home. <laughs> no. The people of God should be characterized by providing for themselves and others through hard work. So let's unpack that for a little bit this morning, okay? So there's a variety of things in that sentence. There's a principle, biblical principle, that I'm drawing from verses 7 to 10. Okay, then then I want us to move into the, the corresponding problem in the church in verses 11 to 12. And then you probably noticed how Paul instructs the congregation at large how to respond In the bookends, in verses 6 and then 13 to 15. So we've got a principle, we've got a problem, and then we have a response. So we're going to work from the middle of the passage out, begin with a principle, understand the problem, and with a response. So what's the principle, friends? God created us to live through work. That's the principle. Okay, look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Notice the very first phrase, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. What's Paul asserting there? That godly living is as much caught as, as it is taught. Think about that. The face-to-face instruction he gave the Thessalonians in godliness that didn't start with the public, like behind a pulpit, words coming out of Paul's mouth. What What did his instruction start with? The example of his life. That's where it started. And brothers and sisters, that ought to remind you that every one of you is a teacher in the sense that the personal example of your life will have, for good or ill, a powerful effect on all the people around you. The way you live is always teaching. So what did Paul teach the Thessalonians? Through his example. What did he want them to, to imitate, to mirror as a result of his life. We'll look at verse 8. With toil and labor, we worked, Paul and his companions, night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Or to put it negatively in verse 7, we were not idle. Now, I think it's fair to say our, our culture sends some, some pretty mixed messages when it comes to this whole issue of work. So, on the one hand... We dislike work. And we want to be done with work as soon as possible. So we we say things like, thank God it's Friday. And you can read in all kinds of financial planning magazines how to retire early and spend at least a few years of your existence enjoying the good life you were waiting for before you die. So we we dislike it on the one hand, but, but on the other hand, and I think this is even more important to say in a Western culture, we idolize our work, right? How do we do that? Well, we look to our job to discover our identity, to give us a sense of worth and, and value and purpose in the world. We discover the color of our parachutes and then we don't stop searching for jobs or switching jobs until we find the perfect fit. I mean, think about this. Think about how many men and women spend their entire life trying to climb the corporate ladder. Sacrificing their, their emotional, their physical health, not to mention their families in an endless search For worth and identity and value and meaning. We we think of productivity, maybe you can relate to this, as the ultimate measure of what is true, good, right, and therefore worthy of allegiance. The best day is a what kind of day, all you type A organized people? A productive day! I'd ask you to raise your hand, but I can't really raise my hand with you. But I would. And to my heart, I'm raising my hand, right? So, so what's going on? On the one hand, mixed messages, our culture disdains work. But on the other hand, we just pendulum swing and we idolize it. We disdain it or we idolize it. Or usually for most of us, if we're honest, some twisted combination of both. But, but do you realize, friend, Christianity says something entirely different? It doesn't pick either one of those. It just says no to the whole lot. So, so let me lay out in three subpoints here. What, what does Christianity say about work? We really can't understand this passage unless we kind of zoom out and get a bit of the big picture. So first, God created us to work. He created us to work. He created you to work. So when he, when he created the first man and woman, what did he say to them in Genesis 128? And God said to them, be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then the same design resurfaces in Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to chill in a hammock. (laughs) No. To work it and keep it. unless you get off track there, don't don't limit what I just read to farmers and fishermen, okay? That call to work applies to every man and woman who has ever lived. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is exceedingly good, And when you work, friend, whether, listen, as a roofer, a teacher, a caretaker, an artist, a programmer, a project manager, or any other activity that enhances human flourishing, you are doing what? What God created you to do. And remember, work includes all kinds of unpaid activities too. So when when you're studying hard in school, to prepare for your future. You're working when you're serving your parents by joyfully doing chores around the house. You're working when you're preparing a meal for someone, when you're serving on a ministry team in the church. When you're staying home and caring for three kids under the age of four, you're working. You don't have to get paid for it to be work. And in all those ways and a thousand more, God created us to work, to take what? The substance of the created world and use it to provide for ourselves and others. Well, why did God do that? Why did he create us to work and in so doing to provide for ourselves and others? For others. Well, it's really simple. It's because work is one of the ways that we image God as our creator. He created us in our image. And he's a God who what? He's a God who created all things and upholds all things. He's a God who works and provides for us through his work. So the foundation of work isn't, well, we've got needs. No, it's it's bigger than that. The God who created us in his image. He works. Listen to Psalm 104, verse 14. I love this. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. I I love all those verses. What do they do? They show us how God's work and our work go hand in hand. So what does God do? He causes the plants to grow. Psalm says that, right? What, what do we do? We, we cultivate them. The same plants. God causes them to grow. We cultivate them to provide material necessities and pleasures. Did you catch that? Bread and wine. Not, not just for ourselves, but also for others, especially our, our family and our dependents. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So to provide for both ourselves and others, what's the first and most important thing the Bible teaches us about work? We were created to work. And because of that, it's good. But here's the second thing. Work is hard and painful because of sin. (laughs) Okay, so when, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority... When they said no instead of yes to God, it wasn't just their relationship with God that suffered. Guess what else suffered? Their relationship with work. Genesis three seventeen, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but do you realize the fact that work is hard right now and painful right now and makes us really tired right now is in many ways a gracious gift from God? Because it helps us remember that, that this world, it isn't the way God created it to be. Think about that. The next time you are dog-tired from work, Reminds us the world isn't the way God created it to be. God didn't create poverty. He didn't create disability. He didn't. He didn't create economic downturns and unemployment. So, so what went wrong? Well, we sinned. Right. We're we're all living under the curse. We we desperately need a savior. We desperately need Jesus to make right all that our sin has made wrong, starting with our relationship with God, but then extending to our work. Which is why the third subpoint here is so important. Jesus will redeem our work by redeeming the entire created order. Think about this. When Jesus comes back, which his resurrection guarantees he will, Because he's not dead right now. He's alive. And when he comes back, you know what he's not going to do? He is not going to bring an end to work. Maybe you've thought that when Jesus comes back, I mean, it's just going to be like some sort of eternal divine buffet and who knows who's prepping the food, but apparently no human is. So, man, this is great. No, no. No, work won't disappear. Work will be redeemed. So speaking of the heavenly city, life in the new creation, Revelation 21, 24 declares, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it over and over and over again the glory and honor of the nation. Think about that, that the productive output, that the fruit of the work of every tribe and tongue will be summoned entirely with no exceptions, brought to serve the glory of God and the good of his people. It's stunning. So so what do we do in the meantime then? What do we do in the meantime? while work is both good and hard. Well, Colossians 3 helps us here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When? When Jesus comes back and work is redeemed? No, right now. Right now, that's an incredible promise, friend. When you work heartily, when you work diligently, when you work in a way that honors God, listen, you're not just serving clients and patients or customers or kids. You're serving Jesus. You're glorifying Jesus. And one day you're gonna get rewarded by Jesus. Why? Because we please God when we do what he created us to do. And by the way, God is pleased with work done in a way that's glorifying to him. No matter how many other people in your life see what you're doing, we appreciate what you're doing, we thank you for what you're doing. Remember, we're not ultimately working for men, we're working for the Lord. So parents, take heart. God created us to live through work. That's the biblical principle. By providing for ourselves and others through that work. It's one of the primary ways that we worship and honor God with our life. And that, friends, is why Paul refused to be idle. He refused to sponge off the Thessalonians' generosity. He had a right to expect them to support him financially as a minister of the gospel. But but he chose not to. He worked night and day. I mean, my question is, please tell me you slept because I can't preach if I don't sleep. He worked night and day for his own bread instead of eating their bread. Why? Well, look at verse 9. To give them an example to imitate. Not because it's Paul's idea, because it's God's design. If work is available and you are able to work, you should work to provide for yourself and others instead of depending unnecessarily on other people to provide for you that's the biblical principle and it's it's straightforward enough but there was a problem in Thessalonica so what's the problem that's the principle god created us to live through work if you're able to work work is available you should work to provide for yourself and others that's the principle what's the problem Providing for those who are unwilling to work enables disobedience. So think about this. Apparently, there were not just professing Christians, but but actual members of the church in Thessalonica, brothers, Paul calls them, verse 6, who were what? Walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. What's the tradition they received from Paul? It's God's design for work, right? Which, which he modeled and explained in verses seven to nine. And this is fascinating. That word, the tradition, is the same phrase Paul uses back in chapter two to describe the truth of the gospel. The good news of, of salvation from sin and death through, through faith in Christ. So, so what does that tell us? Well, that's Paul's way of, reminding them in no uncertain terms, listen, guys, God's design for work isn't just a function of creation. It's an implication of the gospel. How so? Well, when Jesus died, he purchased men and women for God. So if you're a Christian, if you're trusting Jesus as your savior, friend, you're not your own. You don't own yourself. God owns you because he bought you. Your body's not your own. Your time's not your own. Your gifts and abilities are not your own. You are Christ. Christ Jesus owns you because he paid for you at the cost of his own blood. That's a clear implication of the gospel. Therefore, Jesus has an absolute right to tell you how to live. Which means it's not okay to say to Jesus, listen, I know you made me to work, but I'm not really into that. I would rather other people work and let me get in on the benefits. I mean, it's not like I'm lying in bed all day. I'm plenty busy with all sorts of things. So busy, in fact, I don't have time to work. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That is a great translation of what's even clearer in the original language. Guys, you're meddling and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You're looking busy. You're feeling busy. You're, You're involved in all kinds of other people's affairs, but you're not actually doing what God created you to do. You're not working. Remember, idleness from God's perspective, friend. Idleness, please hear this, isn't the absence of activity categorically. It's the absence of the activity God has called you to do. There are a lot of busy people out there. How are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. How are you doing? Oh, busy. Who are eminently idle. They're not doing what God calls them to do. So what were these idle people doing in Thessalonica? Well, they were sponging off the generosity of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul's concerned because the church's corporate practice of benevolence, no matter how well-intended, being merciful it might have been, it was actually enabling disobedience. So what does Paul say? He's like, guys, time out. Stop. You are hurting through the way you are helping. Helping. Stop it. If you really want to help your brothers and sisters who are able to work and could work but are unwilling to work, then put the power of hunger to work. Look at verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And verse 11, look there is even more specific. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord, Jesus Christ, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's a two-part correction. Realize that. Stop disturbing other people by eating their food. Instead, work to provide for yourself so you can eat your own bread and have something to share. Now, now let me make a really important qualification here because I was thinking about this last night. If you are physically unable to work, where you can't find work. And remember, when I'm talking about work, I'm not just talking about things we get paid to do, okay? But if you're unable to work or you can't find work, especially vocational work, you shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed. Please hear that, okay? Just listen really carefully. We don't merit God's favor or blessing through our work. Ever. We receive God's favor and blessing as what? A gift through faith in Christ. So, what does that mean? All of us are ultimately dependent on the Lord as our provider. All of us. Even those who are able to work and willing to work. That's our starting point, okay? So, you shouldn't be ashamed. If you're unable to work or can't find work. But, but that's not the problem Paul's really addressing here in Thessalonica. The folks he's correcting here were what? They weren't unable to work. They were unwilling to work. And there's a big difference. And so that leaves us with a, a challenge, a problem as it were, which the church still faces today. How are we going to respond to people who would abuse our generosity? would abuse your generosity. And here's where Paul ends with some really practical instruction at the bookends. Remember I said there's a principle in the middle, then a problem, and then a response on the bookends. So so what's the response here? What does the Lord tell us? How should we respond to this problem? In your practice of generosity, refuse to ignore the spiritual danger of laziness. Every part of that sentence is important, okay? So think about it. When you feel like people are abusing your generosity, you know what I'm talking about? They are so taking advantage of me, and that is so not cool. What are we tempted to do? Stop giving. Categorically, right? So we get taken advantage of one too many times. And eventually we just decide, you know what? I am just I am sick and tired of this whole generosity thing. If you have needs, deal with it. You take care of you. I'll take care of me. I, I get there are people out there with real needs, but the, the risk of abuse is just too great. That may be how you're tempted to respond, friend, but, but that is not how the Lord tells us to respond. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Yes, Lord, praying occasionally for that person. Sure, pray, but in context, what is that good? It's the good of material assistance or financial support, right? So Paul knew the Thessalonians were tempted to just quit giving to people in need altogether because of the way their generosity had been abused. So before he says anything else to them, gives them any more instructions. He exhorts them. He warns them. He commands them. Guys, don't stop being generous just because it could be abused. Why not? Well, for the simple reason, friend, that that's part of the cost of loving broken people in a broken world. And I want you to think about this. Lest we carry on in our self-righteousness, Christian, have you ever presumed on the kindness of God? Have you ever abused the gift of his forgiveness by intentionally disobeying his commands? You did something you so knew was wrong. wasn't even uncertain. I know that's wrong. But you know what? I think I'm going to do it because I know he'll forgive me. You ever taken the intellect God's given you? Or the financial resources he's entrusted to you? Or the time he's graciously allotted you? Anybody ever used any of those things in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord? I mean, let's be honest, friends. There's not a Christian on the planet who has not taken advantage of the lavish generosity of God. Let that humble you. And yet, the Lord hasn't grown weary in doing good to us. Right? Luke 6, 35. May we follow his example. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind. He's kind. He's generous. He shows steadfast love. To the ungrateful and the evil, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. You you realize that the command to not stop being generous in response to this problem, it reinforces one of the core purposes of work that I alluded to earlier. What's that? God created us to work, not just so we have something to eat, but so that we have something to give. And please notice, friend, look at verse 13. There is no asterisk at the end of that sentence that says, only applicable to six-figure households. Don't exempt yourself from doing good. Just because you feel like, compared to that guy or those people, I've got nothing to share. I've got nothing to give. No. No a few years ago just to illustrate this i i received a card from a member of our church who was just writing to express their gratitude and thankfulness for me and i opened it up and and inside that card was a financial gift and in the world's eyes the The amount of the financial gift you, people would have probably—that's nothing, man. I mean, maybe you could get lunch at Chick Fil A. But when I opened that card, I was undone. And the reason is that I knew that woman was in dire financial straits, and I thought to myself. I don't deserve a single dollar of this gift. And in that moment, what what did I experience, friend? Maybe you've had a situation like that. What did we experience in that moment? We experience a little taste of the unselfish love of God through generosity. So don't don't count yourself out of being used by God to do good to others, to obey verse 13, even if you have very little to give. And even, listen, when it's possible your generosity could be abused. So be wise, do your homework, take take appropriate precautions, but don't ever let avoiding abuse of generosity drive the giving train. What should drive the giving train? the lavish generosity of God toward us in Jesus Christ. Let that drive the train. And I'm grateful for your example in this regard, church. I asked Allison for these figures last night. Year to date, you've given over $11,000 just to the Mercy Fund, uh, which we used to provide material support for families in need inside and outside the church. And that doesn't include the countless ways you've practically loved one another by making meals, donating food, providing volunteer babysitting, you name it. I'm grateful. So our first response to the possibility of somebody abusing our generosity is what? Don't stop being generous. Okay, remembering we're not ultimately giving, we're serving men. We're serving and giving to the Lord. And all we have is what? His to begin with. Nothing we ever do for him or give to him is in vain. But what do we do if we know a particular person in the church, in our community, is clearly abusing the church's generosity? How do we respond if someone able to work consistently refuses to work or provide for themselves. Look back at verse six, second part of the response. Now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And we, we find the same instruction in verse 14. Look there. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Does that strike you as harsh? Keep away? Have have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed? Really, Paul? I mean, are you bipolar or schizophrenic or what, what is going on? Love and kindness was just oozing out of verse 13 and then... It's like the beat down in verse 14. Well, brothers and sisters, the Lord's admonition to us in verse six and then in verse 14 are an incredible expression of love and kindness. Let me explain. It's called the love and kindness of church discipline. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Remove them from membership in the church? And continue to love and care for them, but as an unbeliever, not a church member. So when a professing Christian refuses to live in keeping with their profession by obeying, The clear command of God's word refuses to do that, including commands like verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What does love do in those instances? Love refuses to pretend, I didn't see that. Everything's okay. Say it again. Love refuses to do that. Love refuses to turn a blind eye to their disobedience. So love says what? Brother, sister, if you continue down a path of willful, unrepentant sin, you have no hope of salvation on the final day of judgment. This is about a lot more than just don't be lazy. There are spiritual stakes to whether or not you were on the path of obedience to King Jesus in your work. And friend, we love you so much. We are so committed to the eternal good of your soul that if you persist in refusing to live in keeping with your profession of faith, then you will force us. We have no choice but to withdraw our affirmation of your profession of faith and we will have to remove you as a member of the church. We can't continue to affirm the authenticity of your profession, leaving you as a member in good standing when all of the unrepentant laziness in your life that we have appealed to you about over and over and over again screams you're not following King Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says keep away or have nothing to do with them. He's not talking about a cold shoulder. He's talking about a redemptive process of church discipline. And and there are times we have to do that, friends. Why? We, We do it to avoid promoting false assurance of salvation. Right? For the individual in question. We do it to avoid sowing seeds of moral confusion in the hearts and minds of the watching church. And we do it to avoid compromising the integrity of our church's witness to the implications of the gospel in the eyes of the watching world. So what's what's the goal here? What's the goal? To make that person feel the shame and guilt of their sins so they wallow in despair and come back begging to us, please let me back in as a member of good standing. No. No. No, the goal is for the unrepentant sinner to feel the shame and guilt of their sin so that they come to their spiritual senses. So they what? They turn from their sin for the evil that it is. They go back to trusting Jesus Christ as the Savior they need. And they choose to make choices in their work to honor the Savior they claim to trust. That's the goal. That's the win. It's always repentance. That's the goal. That's the redemptive aim. There's nothing vindictive going on here. Look at verse 15. This is so clear at the very end. Paul commands no matter what they've done or how far they go in their idle laziness, never regard him as an enemy. Instead, warn him as a brother, plead with him, urge him in view of his profession his professed identity as a fellow member of the body of Christ, brother, sister, turn from your sin of laziness and work as God created you to work. That's a precious means of grace to a wandering saint, front. Don't ever think that discipline is bad. It's a gift. It's a gift. If, I'll say it this strongly. If you are not willing to do what I've just described and what Paul commands here and the Lord through him for a fellow member of this church, you don't actually love the way God loves. In our persistent practice of generosity, we must refuse to ignore the spiritual danger of laziness. In summary, friends, the the main idea must not be lost. The people of God should be characterized by what? Providing for themselves and others through hard work. It's what God created us to do. It's what God saved us to do. It's it's one of the ways we model the generosity God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Jesus didn't come to earth to be served. He came to what? To serve God. And to give his life as a ransom for many. When, if you're sponging off the church, if you're abusing another Christian's generosity, you're doing the exact opposite. You're taking advantage of others. You're stealing from others instead of giving and serving others. As Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 4, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Make that your goal, friend, in all of your work to be able to provide for yourself, but not just yourself, for other people around you. And if you're already doing that, don't stop being generous just because you know that quite possibly your generosity could be abused. People could take advantage of you. The, the Lord sees all things, he knows all things, and Jesus will use the discipline of the church to help that wandering saint come to their senses. Let's pray. Father, in all of this, we need courage and humility to honor you. We want to be the kind of people, the kind of body who embrace your political vision for the church. People that are characterized by working to provide for ourselves and others and doing it with diligence. Father, I pray that wherever we've drifted from that or wherever we may have become disillusioned with the generosity part of that or fallen into the trap of idleness, that you would bring the gracious gift of conviction and power to change. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus, even as we now prepare to share the Lord's Supper. In your name I pray. Amen.